This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church. Our scripture reading today is found in Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72, and then again, 97 through 112. If you are using a Pewback Bible, that is on pages 513 through 515. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of the Pewbacks as a gift from Park Church. Again, that is Psalm 119. We're starting in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better than a thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offering of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Melanie. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all through the, the smoky haze that exists in our city right now. Um, my name is Neil, one of the pastors here at Park, and we are finishing up our Christ in the Psalms series for this summer. Uh, that, among other things, kind of helps me feel the, the turn toward summer being over, which is kind of crazy. Um, I feel like kids are gearing up for school, college students are packing bags, summer trips are kind of getting packed in last minute. Um, and in case you forgot about him, uh, we have a lead pastor named Gary McQuinn, and he's coming back this week. Uh, he's been out three months. Um, just a, a rhythm that we want to see our leaders step into is periodically uh, get time away for a sabbatical. Uh, and different churches approach this differently. Some are more kind of study or writing oriented. Uh, the way we approach sabbatical is truly time for rest, just to, to cease regular labor. 
uh, and to be, to be with family and friends, do things you enjoy, uh, to feel human, uh, experience healing and restoration. Um, so that's where Gary's been over the past three months, uh, he and his family, and he'll be back in the pulpit uh, over the next two Sundays. Um, so we'll have to welcome him back. And those of you who have come to Park over the past three months, you'll be able to meet Gary McQuinn. All right, let's dive into Psalm 119. This is, you know, usually we do one psalm a week, but Psalm 119 just like keeps going. Like when you get to the Bible reading plan, it's just like, okay, one chapter a day, and you just keep on turning the pages. So we've broken it up and kind of taken different angles over the past three weeks. Um, first week was God's Word over us, and then it was God, God's Word in us last week, and this morning we're looking at God's Word to us. And I really have one objective for us this morning. Uh, and that's that we would delight in God's Word. I would see it to be beautiful and attractive. It would draw us in, and we would pursue God through the Word that He's given to us, His self-revelation. So if you would, pray with me uh, toward that end. Father, thank You for Your words. I thank You for uh, the instruction You've given to us, uh, the stories that you've laid before us, uh, the, the revelation of who you are, of who we are, of the world that you've made, of what it looks like to, to navigate it, uh, we're grateful. Uh, but if we're honest, we don't yet see it for what it is. Uh, we don't yet treasure you in your word as, as faithfully as we would long to. Uh, the parts that are frustrating for us or confusing or tedious, uh, may our, our hearts come alive to them. I mean, we just ache and long uh, to be in your presence through your word. So, Spirit, please come and do what only you can do to, to stir our affections, uh, to draw us, uh, to, to be able to experience the kindness of the Father, and to know that that comes through so often uh, the word that you've given to us. So, please come and work and, and glorify yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's fun uh, to watch people delight in things. And we just got back from a trip in Moab with my family on Tuesday night. And um, you know, we tried to do the souvenir thing with our three-and-a-half-year-old. And this, this year, he picked a Tyrannosaurus Rex, battery-operated T-Rex. And this goes directly against my wife's no battery-operated toys that make the same noise over and over again policy. Uh, but lo and behold, we come home from Moab, and the anticipation is thick. You know, we get back pretty late because of the whole Glenwood Springs thing, and get back later in, in the evening. So we have to wait till the next morning on Wednesday, and he is elated. We're going to get, get out of the box and find where the batteries are, put those in the right place. And the anticipation grew even more because we didn't realize there's like this other corridor. We got to tuck a third battery down in there, and then finally got it to work. And the utter delight and elation that was on my son's face as he saw this T-Rex do the same motion across the floor over and over and over again, making the same noise over and over and over again. Pure delight. Well, maybe for you it's not battery-operated T-Rex toys. Uh, maybe it's a carefully crafted cup of coffee. Uh, maybe it's getting up early enough to hike the 14er and see the sunrise peek through the mountains. Uh, maybe it's pizza, preferably from Blue Pan. Maybe it's ice cream preferably from anywhere. Uh, maybe it's seeing your children reach a certain milestone or closing a business deal or passing the CFP or boards or some other test in your field. 
Maybe it's seen near perfection in cinematography, the design and beauty of a particular space that's been designed in, in, in just a particular way. Or maybe, um, as we're, we're wrapping up the Olympics here, you're not just one of those who kind of flips on the Olympics every once in a while, but this is like mark your calendar every four years. You turn into a, well, I guess five years this year, this time. Like you turn into a qualitatively different person when the Olympics are on because you're seeing superhuman people do superhuman things and like joy and elation just erupts as you watch this happen. The list goes on. Each of us have things that, that bring us joy, bring us delight, that tap into the affections of our soul. We typically don't have to instruct our hearts to do this. It just kind of happens. We experience something, we see something, watch something, and joy comes. Well, then we turn to the author of Psalm 119, and he says things like this. In verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. Verse 111, your testimonies are the joy of my heart. Author C.S. Lewis wondered if the psalmist was somewhat of a masochist. It's like, really? Like the law? Like the law is what brings your heart delight. Isn't that kind of like loving the dental instruments that are extracting the tooth from your mouth? I had this experience a few months ago. Um, I did not get my wisdom teeth taken out when normal people do. Um, said it was about three months ago. And the tooth pain, tooth pain is unlike any other pain. Like when, when you, you have no painkillers that will do the job, just got to get in the dentist. Went quickly, went bad. I had to squeeze into the schedule. And uh, I laid there on the chair, and the dentist explained to me, um, I'm not going to put you under any anesthesia, but it's okay, uh, because I used to do things like this in the Army. So, <laughs> I was not comforted. And then I saw the, the they looked like torture instruments, like going across my, my view into my mouth, and then slowly, eventually, the eagle claw tooth came out of my mouth. Lewis thought... Loving the law must be something like that. Sure, it produces good things. Like it brings something good eventually. But the thing itself? Do you enjoy pain? Enjoy the difficulty? Well, he came to realize that loving God's law is what he called engaging the moral order of the divine mind. So what the psalmist saw in the mind of God, he did not merely have this sort of eruptive burst of positive emotion, but rather a deep respect and love for what he saw in the very mind of God. Lewis went on to say this. The order of the divine mind, embodied in the divine law, is beautiful. Therefore, what should a man do but try to reproduce it so far as is possible in his daily life? His delight is in those statutes. To study them is like finding treasure. They affect him like music. They are as songs. They taste like honey. They are better than silver and gold. As one's eyes are more and more open, one sees more and more in them and excites wonder. This is not priggery or even scrupulosity. It is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty. If we cannot at all share his experience, we shall be the losers. This is what I want us to be, to stir, to be stirred toward this morning, to have our affections, our delights, our longings be oriented around God's word that he's given to us, his revelation, telling us who he is, who we are, what it means to make sense of the world around us, to find joy there. And I want to do this around three different images that the psalmist gives us. Light, 
riches, and a feast. So first, first image is a revealing light. God's word makes us to see. Look at me in verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Maybe if you've grown up in or around church, the song just like pops in your head and you're thinking about that tune and and we can miss some of the significance of, of what's being said here. So let's not miss it. A handful of weeks ago, I was with uh, some friends in Kentucky, and we went into a large cave because apparently in Kentucky, you just go in large caves. That's what you do. Um, so we, this one, this particular large cave used to be a limestone mine uh, for a number of, of decades, almost a century, um, until one lucky fellow tapped into a natural spring, and the whole thing began to flood. And it took a while to do that, uh, but eventually became flooded in places like 25 feet deep of water, and never above 42 degrees, uh, just kind of this meandering set of corridors all throughout this cave. And now for $49 plus tax and tip, you can kayak through this limestone mine, uh, go through this cave, and if you're lucky, you get a tour guide named, named Redshirt, literally. His name was Redshirt. So Redshirt is taking myself and my friends through this cave. And we just keep on getting further and further back, and it gets darker and darker and darker. Of course, we have our headlamps on, showing us different things, some of the history of the mine. And finally, we get to the, the furthest point away from the entrance of the cave. And Redshirt, somehow we're trusting him at this point, Redshirt says, turn off your headlamp. And we're in pitch black darkness. It's a rare moment that we're in actual darkness. You know, we say, oh, it's dark outside, it's dark in this room, it feels really dark. There's still elements of light that typically can find their way to our eyes, and we're able to to kind of adjust over time. This was complete darkness. It's a little terrifying. what What the human eye does in that moment is frantically, just like instinctually, darting around trying to find any ounce of light, any, any amount of light to kind of pull things in, orient yourself, like where am I, can I see, am I safe, what's going on, how do I move forward? That's what the eye does in the midst of darkness. And I think there's a worthy comparison here for us in living our lives. Now, perhaps without realizing it, we navigate through life through amount, a fair amount of darkness. We don't have complete clarity when we're making everyday decisions. We're choosing which relationship to pursue, uh, what job to take, uh, what move we should make or not make, what degree to pursue. Should we go through this procedure? How do we make sense of our political moment? In these moments, which are really quite frequent, if we consider all kind of the smaller decisions that we make on an everyday basis, we're often naturally, instinctually, frantically, kind of darting around trying to find where is some light? How do I make sense of things? How do I have clarity? How do I see? And the question is, where do we go in search of this light? What lamps are guiding our paths? Is it conventional wisdom? The blogosphere? That influencer we follow? The preferences of others? Some version of so-called democratic or political truth? We have choices. You have choices in the, in the light that we pursue, and we all do choose, whether actively or passively. And not all types of light uh, come from the same source, and they don't all lead to the same place. The psalmist understands the significance of how we see. Now, this verb for seeing shows up time and again in Psalm 119. 
And and verse 105 tells us that God's words, what he's revealed to us in Scripture, is to be the sure and steady source of light for us, how we see a lamp to our feet, showing us where we are and where we should go, a light to our paths, pushing out the darkness, revealing what's there and what we should do about it. This is the essence of how light is used in Scripture, you know, causing the darkness to disappear and often associated with guidance and life, prosperity, and most of all, sight. This is what we have in God's Word, the Bible in all its fullness and beauty, allowing us to see what's there and discern what to do about it. And this isn't to imply that, that we don't glean good information and at times really good wisdom from other sources, our own life experience, you know, parents, friends, other family members, podcasts, different teachings of different kinds. There are things that we can glean from the outside, but it does mean that the Bible's proper place is our foundational grid through which we see everything else, through which we take every other voice that may come in. What we keep, what we discard, what we rearrange, how we make sense of the information around us. Hear this quote from one commentator as he pulls much of this together. God's words in the Bible issue from the way God is, the way humanity is, and the way the world is. The revelation of God's ways is given so that our ways may be directed so as to correspond to them. To follow God's commands is to align oneself with the nature of the world as he made it. To resist them is to pretend that the world is other than it is. That being so, following these commands and aligning oneself with the actual world will mean we fit in that world harmoniously, honorably, and joyfully. And it relates to us harmoniously, honorably, and joyfully. God's teaching is a means to understanding and to obedience, and thus to life, life in all its fullness. The walk that follows God's way is one that experiences good fortune. There are many exceptions to this rule, but this should not make us lose sight of the rule. It also means we align ourselves with the way God is. Thus, we find ourselves living within the sphere of his faithfulness. God is personally involved with us as we walk this walk. We rejoice in being God's servant and having God as master. So God's word is a revealing light. Scripture does allow us to see. Second, it's full of abundant riches. God's word provides for us. I think it's commonly accepted that the humans are driven by desire, things that we want. You know, to the extent that we're aware, that kind of varies. The extent that these are our noble pursuits or accurate pursuits, again, can vary. But, but we, we all desire things. We kind of have this vision of what's the good life? What's going to bring me joy? What's going to bring me life? I want to pursue it. So I want to make decisions based upon that. That's why money has such a powerful influence over many of us. Uh, I think few people desire money in and of itself. There are some, but typically we desire money because it kind of gives a sense of liberation to go pursue the other things that we think are going to give us joy, give us happiness. We feel a sense of freedom. Even if we we don't find ourselves more on kind of the materialistic side of the spectrum, maybe we're more kind of experience-driven, we still need sufficient monetary funds to be able to go do the things we want to do, to craft the kind of life that we long to have. Then we turn to the psalmist. We see him say in verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then in verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, 
above fine gold. How can this be? How can God's law, his words, what he has given to us in Scripture be better than the consistent and growing paycheck, a thriving on-track 401K, you know, having the money for, that we want for financial security or to be able to, to do the things in life that we want to do? How can Scripture truly be better than these, more worthy of our delight and our love? I think it should strike us that two out of the three times the psalmist talks about God's word being better than riches, it's in the context of affliction. You know, affliction takes many forms in our lives, you know, different degrees of intensity and different types. But in every instance, there's this sense that we lack what we need, a sense of scarcity. It's like, I don't have what I need right now to be okay, to move forward. Like something is insufficient, and I, I want to go get it. We get angsty, even if we know the thing that we may be pursuing isn't going to completely satisfy, completely fulfill. It's like it's not ultimately going to end that well, but it can kind of get me through for a little bit longer. It can satisfy mildly, temporarily. At times we'll grasp for anything that will give us a semblance of provision. Meanwhile, the psalmist speaks of God's word as being his treasure. The very thing that provides all that we need, completely sufficient. In the moments of affliction, in the moments of relative peace, giving us what we need. But as Augustine has put it, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. Is it possible that we're mi missing out on the riches of God's word because we've so stuffed our pockets with other lesser things that we don't even come desiring them? We don't even come recognizing the goodness and the fullness and the sufficiency that God has given to us in Scripture. Look with me back, uh, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Be insolent, smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then we have it in verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, we, we never should call good what God calls evil. The humans do horrific things to one another. We don't call those things good. They're evil. You know, awful things happen just through natural events or whatever else. We call those things for what they are. And at the same time, with the psalmist, we can say that, God, you are good and you do good in the midst of it, through it, through the difficulty, through the affliction, through the suffering, through the things that are genuinely evil. God, you are good. You remain the same. And you do good. Oftentimes, much of that good is what he's doing in us in the midst of that affliction. As a reformer, Martin Luther has put it, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I've always found it one of my best schoolmasters. So God is good. He does good. He speaks what is good for us, and he provides that for us abundantly. Abundant riches, absolute sufficiency. No matter the affliction, no matter the absence of affliction, God is the one who is our sufficiency, and that through his word. So God's word is our revealing light, and it is full of riches. Third image, it's a delightful feast. 
It's a delightful feast. God's word strengthens and nourishes us. In meetable times and still some places today, uh, when a young student in a Jewish school would show up for the first time, uh, they, would, they would put honey on the Torah or on the Hebrew alphabet and have them lick it from the, from the Torah. And it was meant to, to signify, and really like in a visceral way, the sweetness of learning from God's Word, of taking in what He's given to us. At times they would read from Ezekiel 3.3, where Ezekiel the prophet says this, And he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. The psalmist says something similar in verse 103. It says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The Word of God is our very sustenance. It is our very means for life. Indeed, it is a feast again and again. And I think it's telling in uh, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, you know, when he's fasting, and toward the end, Satan comes and, and tempts him. And, and one of the temptations is, hey, feel hungry? You can take care of that right now. And just kind of leverage your abilities and, 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 and speak and, and turn this stone into bread. And then your hunger will be satisfied. Well, Jesus swiftly responds, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God strengthens and nourishes us in ways that physical food never can and just isn't designed to do. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, there are certain foods that you know are good for you. They don't taste good. They're not sweet like honey. Um, I could survive broccoli night growing up because there was this beautiful layer of melted Velveeta cheese that rested right upon the bowl of broccoli. And if you were the first to the bowl, then you could get the best ratio of Velveeta to broccoli and you wouldn't have to taste a thing. That was sweet as honey. And then I got married and I learned that some people like to taste the broccoli. There's no Velveeta. Uh, maybe a few seasonings on there, maybe like some sprinkling of, of some cheese. Um, but there's, there's an enjoyment of tasting the broccoli, not sweet as honey. But that does not change the fact that broccoli is good for me. Like it has things in it, when I digest it, take it into my body, it's good for me. So too, we can often come to the Word of God. We read and learn and hear the stories and try to match what we see in Scripture with our experiences around us, with the devastation, with kind of the, the, the confusing narratives around us, with close friends who are, are pursuing things or delighting in things that we think is contrary from what we see in Scripture. Sometimes we don't like the taste of what we have in Scripture. Say, this doesn't taste good to me, so it must not be good for me. Uh, this, this logic is all wrong, and the end result can be devastating, because to discount the goodness of God and His Word, because it tastes funny in our mouths, is to assume that God got it wrong in, in His communication, in His revelation. You know, if if indeed, indeed God is good and He does good, then He speaks what is good for us, even if it doesn't taste good to us. Uh, we should at least for a minute consider that maybe our spiritual taste buds are the things that are off. Maybe through our own brokenness or weakness or sin or the cultural narratives around us that find their way into our own thinking, our own upbringing, our own fill in the blank. 
perhaps our spiritual taste buds are off. And so we take in what is good, but it tastes off to, to us. It tastes funny. doesn't mean there aren't real questions there. But we cannot come to the Word of God and assume that God is the one who is off. It is still good for us, even when it doesn't taste right. At other points, we think the Word of God is just too confusing. Too many books and stories and characters and seeming contradictions and, you know, ethical demands we can't necessarily square with what we see in society more broadly. And we can find slothfulness and just kind of a a discounting of Scripture, setting it aside as, as the most attractive alternative. But, but what if the Bible did kind of systematize this bullet point set of answers to all the questions that we had? And all you needed was just like 60 seconds and an index, and you could find bullet point number whatever, and then you found the answer to that question that you felt in that moment. Would we even want that? Does it even square with who we are as human persons and who God is and how he has made us? Do we just want a simple instruction manual? I don't think we do. And we don't consistently sit down to a meal of rice and beans over and over again with no accompanying flavors and call it magnificent. So no, we love the creativity, the complexity of flavors, the nuance, the fact that, that, it, that it takes intentionality and interaction to figure out, like, what, what, what are the flavors there? How did you get to this end result? It keeps us coming back as it nourishes us and produces an increasing longing for what is placed before us. And we have nothing less and so much more in the Word of God. It is a delightful feast, complex beyond description, yet at the same time nourishing beyond compare. It keeps us coming back, and it must, for we do not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's here that we experience the goodness and the greatness of God. So the Word of God is a revealing light. It is full of riches, and it is a delightful feast. It was fascinating to me reading some on uh, Psalm 119. Uh, A handful of scholars actually accused the author of worshiping the Word above the God who spoke the words, who gave the Word. And it's here we must see how deeply, how richly, how intimately God has tethered himself to his Word, to the extent that the two cannot be separated one from the other. And this comes together most fully, most profoundly in a way that the psalmist could only anticipate in the most beautiful life that has ever been lived, that of Jesus Christ, whom we were told is the Word of God made flesh. The Word of God not just spoken to us, but coming and dwelling among us, living amongst us, taking our our own plight, our own brokenness, our own sin upon himself, suffering and dying and then raising to new life and giving that life to all those who would trust in him. Jesus, the Word made flesh. For those of you in the room who aren't sure what you think about the Bible or Jesus or Christianity more broadly, a question for you. This, this is what we believe about Scripture. It's a revealing light. It helps us to see things for the way they are. It's full of riches. It actually provides the sufficiency that we long for as human persons. And it's a delightful feast. And we come to it to, to be satisfied again and again and again. And it nourishes us and strengthens us. So the question for you is, where do you go? Where do you go to make sense of the world around you, of your own story, of your own background, the brokenness that you see around your own life, but also those that you care for? Where do you go to be satisfied? Where do you go to be filled up? Is it working? 
Is this a well that doesn't run dry? Is this a feast that you can return to again and again and feel genuinely satisfied? Well, Jesus gives the invitation to simply come to him. The word who has come to us to deliver us, to bring us back to the Father, to offer us freedom and joy, delight. And he simply says, come. For the Christian, uh, even those of us uh, who say, we believe these things about the Word of God, we're pursuing these things about the Word of God, that, yeah, that, that is the way I try to approach it. I think there's still an ever-present danger, even in the midst of our love for the preached Word and, 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 and just saturating ourselves with it. Uh, like some of you, I've been pulled in by the recent podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, put on by Mike Cosper and, and Christianity Today. I mean, it's been like all the emotions going through it. Um, it's been eye-opening in many ways. It's been healing in other ways. It's also been convicting. A number of the, the leaders and voices and movements, uh, which get you know, mixed reviews, have been really influential for us as a church and a lot of us as leaders and it, in re- some really positive ways as well, which I think the podcast you know, tells the story faithfully. But there is this shadow, shadow side no matter what particulars we want to draw from what that shadow side looks like, I think there's this overarching shadow of our, our kind of sinful human tendency uh, to attach our hope to another sinful human person. Uh, we, we like the way that person leads or teaches the Bible or preaches or writes or has a following on social media, uh, the way they look. And then, and then our hope, like, it's kind of devious. It kind of finds its way into, you know, that's where my hope lies. Whatever this person says, however they lead. And, and really what the, the podcast has been dismantling is, is that kind of culture of, you know, celebrity culture and this kind of narcissistic bravado that uh, we all take part in at different points. Uh, kind of wanting that, finding a protection in that in certain ways. So even as we love the Word of God, we seek the, the faithful preaching of it, we want to live under and be nourished by what we see in Scripture. Let us make sure that our hope is not slowly trickling away to some other sinful human person, but rather the only human person who is without sin. The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who is also God himself. He is the one who invites us to experience the delight that only he provides, to nourish us, to strengthen us, give us every good thing that we need, and to give his body and his blood as this delightful feast. Really, we want to hear the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is the invitation. The God who has revealed himself, who has given us his word, he says, come. It is without price. Come buy without any money. Eat, drink, be satisfied. The question remains for us, what what do we do with this word? What what do we do with what God has given to us in the word? 
Does it form us and shape us? Does it delight us? Do we come back to it again and again at, for what it is? Experiencing the, the richness, the fullness that he's provided for us. This is the invitation for us to do. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to spend just a couple of minutes um, allowing the Spirit to stir in our own hearts. How do we come before Jesus as Word? But let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are this Word. Thank you that you've revealed the heart of the Father. You have beautifully shined this light on what it means to be human. Where our delight is to be found. You've given yourself as the, the fullness of riches. You've given your, your body and your blood as this feast, as this meal for us to take in and be nourished by. So may we see you and enjoy you as the word made flesh that you are. And as we, become, we come before your written word, help us to see that you have so tethered yourself to it that in coming to Scripture, we hear from you. We're able to experience you. We're able to know you, to walk intimately with you. So stir our affections. Please work in our hearts and our minds. May we see your word for what it is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.